Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. We have a very special guest with us in the studio today who graduated from Cairn in 1975, Dr. Edgar Hardesty, and many listening will not know him by simply his graduation from the university, but his long period of time here at Cairn. And we're sitting just a few weeks prior to Dr. Hardesty's retirement from the university. Now, we did a little math here, and uh, Dr. Hardesty helped me out. If you include his time as a student, this would mark uh, close to 49 years of association with Karen, either as a student or a faculty member. You heard that correctly, 49. And at the risk, maybe, of sounding like I'm delivering a eulogy, Ed has lived a full and eclectic life. And uh, when I first reconnected with him as a colleague, when I started working here at Karen in 2013, uh, he was here when I was a student, but I, I never had a class with him, just knew of him. But uh, shortly after we started the podcast, I always thought to myself when I heard him speak, he would be an ideal guest for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that it seems to me he has an ideal radio voice. And now all this has come together. Uh, at the tail end of his career here, but for a discussion of his time and legacy at Cairn in his final days. So, Ed, thanks for taking the time to come and sit and, and talk with me. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, first, Ed, I want people to know right off the bat, there, there's a chapel that you did recently. I was in that mm-hmm. chapel in the back, and uh, they should definitely check that out for, I don't know, you could correct me, but I would call the full Hardesty story, or at least the fuller story. Um, and you really should uh, take a listen to that for a number of reasons. I think that you will be encouraged, uh, challenged, um, and probably moved as well as I was. But um, and now that we have kind of a different venue and maybe a little bit more personal with the back and forth, Ed, yeah. I'm wondering if you could kind of in broader brushstrokes paint just a survey of, of your career that for some of you who know, some who listen, who know you well, they may be familiar with, but for some who may not. Um, you can fill in some of the details. So, so kind of the generally the post high school oh, artisty yeah. story, yeah, the abbreviated version, the, the, the Cliff Snights <laughs> for sure. <laughs> oh, let's see. I went to a very technical high school. It was called Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, and most of the guys leaving there were heading for engineering or science, the hard sciences of one sort or another. I turned around from that because I was so lousy at math, <laughs> but uh, went to University of Baltimore and was in business administration, corporate finance, heading for law school. Let's see, what year was it? 1966. Uh, Lyndon Johnson thought I should see more of the world. Uh, so uh, I found out I was about to be drafted. I'd always loved the Air Force and I was in my third year at University of Baltimore. Um, when I started that year, we had 67 guys in the major. When I found out I was on the next month's list, there were 13 of us left. And we all had student deferment. So you, you see the kind of urgency mm-hmm. there was in that day. Uh, four years in the military. Uh, and then after that, came out and tried to finish up at University of Baltimore at night because I'd got married, had a little boy. Um, and the Lord shifted our gears in that two-year period between getting out of the military and actually ending up at PCB. Um, went to check out a number of schools. Doug McCorkle, Dr. McCorkle, the president in those days, had a lot to do with answering the questions that had us end up at PCB. 
Uh, it certainly wasn't the campus or the the, <laughs> the beautiful the construct of everything right. around it. 18th and Arch in those days. Um, most of my colleagues in those days were not uh, the average student. I was 10 to 12 years older than most of the rest of the class. So my friends were primarily staff and faculty and older married students. Um, and we all kind of struggled through that together. Uh, the whole time at PCB, and it took me three years, plus my three years at University of Baltimore to finish a four-year degree, um, everything transferred, but it's not going to apply to a Bible degree. And in those days, everyone was a Bible major. So in the midst of all that, uh, I was working at uh, First Baptist Church in Collingdale, Pennsylvania, down in Delaware County. Uh, I was the education and youth guy and then uh, assistant to the pastor. Uh, and the year we took off between college and seminary, uh, we stayed on. We were the first time they'd had a multiple staff, and that all transitioned into uh, who they are now. We've kept in touch over the years. Um, off to Dallas Seminary. Now I have two children. Like I mentioned in chapel the other day, we, uh, we crammed the four-year program into five. Uh, <laughs> left there in 81. Uh, some of the fellows I went through PCB with were also students at Dallas during that time period. So there was a natural affinity for folks. But again, the same thing transpired. Most of my friends were faculty and staff. Back to Baltimore to plant a church, uh, then off to Michigan for a big center city church. And we planted another in the Burbs in the process. And then the group back in uh, Baltimore and the Maryland area asked us to come back and plant another church. And we're still at that church as a senior pastor. Um, we moved from the Maryland area into southern Pennsylvania and uh, Shrewsbury, just across the state line. Uh, it was during the early planning of that church that I got a call from uh, John Kaywood, Dr. Kaywood. Uh, I had been harassing him for about 10 years. If you're not an excellent student and, and you don't have a 4.0 grade point average and you're not some huge star, is there a place for someone like that to teach? Because I love the people and I love the word and I love to teach. So he calls me, of course, after I had already made another commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, so, <laughs> so I said, John, I can't do that. Uh, I've already made a commitment to these people. <clears throat> he said, why don't you do both? And I've been doing both since 1991. Mm -hmm. uh, started out part-time at about two years into that. Uh, that turned into full-time. And the rest is, you know... <laughs> water under the bridge at yeah. this particular point. Right. Um, John K. Wood hired me. Uh, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't go into this, but uh, the hiring procedure was, come on over to my office. Let's talk for a few minutes. Uh, and we talked maybe 10, 15 minutes. Of course, we knew each other fairly well. And then his comment was, okay, you've started in the fall. Uh, don't make me sorry. I made this decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and off he went from there. So mm -hmm. a lot transpired along the way in terms of uh, other things that I think we're going to talk about sure. a little bit. Yeah. But finally got the love of my life, which was teaching, and at the same time uh, have maintained a pastorate. Hmm. That only works if you have good men, uh, because they take up the slack in terms of administration, some of the counseling. Um, I do all the preaching, uh, most of the teaching. Uh, one of the elders has Wednesday evening, um, and a lot of home stuff and so forth and so on. It's, it has worked extremely well. Yeah, that's really unique. I mean, you're kind of, well, I guess we'd almost call that bivocational, but not in the way that people normally think of that because you're a professor, but you're you're also a pastor. I, I, I'm not sure people 
all realize that. I know that I didn't, that you mm. were in the pastorate. So that gives us a chance, in addition to the other things, for you to uh, to share some of the things that you've learned and gleaned for oh, people wow. who are either in pastoral ministry yeah. or, of course, uh, people listening who are, are certainly hopefully involved as, as members. Um, you have an open microphone in front of you. So what, right. <laughs> what would you want to yeah. say about that? <laughs> well, I, I think it's the best of both worlds. Uh, it can be a disaster because you're working two full-time jobs. Uh, like my wife said, my retirement is merely cutting back to one full-time job. Uh, I can't remember just having one job for many, many, many decades. Um, but I think the strength of being in the pastorate, <clears throat> having to know your people, meet their needs, having to break the word to them, and as an old mentor, Howard Hendricks, used to say, make sure you put the cookies on the bottom shelf so everyone can reach them. Uh, that keeps you fresh in the classroom. You don't become the academic that's disconnected from the real world and people's everyday problems. And as an academic, it also keeps you studying and answering the probing questions that student asks that you don't normally get in a local church. So those two together, I, I think, really have aided and abetted one another and kept me sharp in both worlds, as, as sharp as I can be, at least. Uh, the folks at our church are very much in support of this. And there's never been any conflict here, as far as I know. When I, when I had a funeral, uh, a wedding, something that pulled me away in terms of church ministry, they were always gracious here at the university uh, and grant me the time for that, and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a good symbiotic relationship that really, really aids and abets each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds like that. What about uh, from the pastoral ministry perspective? You know, I'm sure you encounter younger pastors and that sort of thing. And I mean, you're talking about your association with Karen, 50 years. I mean, you look at what has changed in church ministry and, and some of the different things that have come and gone. If somebody were to ask you sort of like, what's the constant that I need to be focusing on as things around continue mm. to change and there's, you know, these various storms of movements and such. What, how do you think through that? One of the things that bothers me now is a sense of professionalism that disconnects the people up front from the people sitting before them. I don't think the context of the first century church ever envisioned anybody showing up putting their money in a box, singing a couple hymns, listening to a 45-minute lecture, and then going home. Uh, we've done our best, both large and small contexts, to develop a family atmosphere and an openness where actually during our services, people from time to time ask questions about things that were, wasn't clear that I said, something in the passage they've seen that needs to be shared with the brothers and sisters, that doesn't work real well with the programmed performance of a lot of churches and the large impersonal nature of a lot of churches. I think if there was anything I would bring to the equation is to ask my brothers and sisters to please remember, first and foremost, an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is primary and absolute. People sense reality in your life when they see it in what you say and do as a result of what you say, ministry will come find you. You don't have to go looking for it. And seldom will it come through the front door. 
there's story after story of connections that when you look at the situation after going through it and having the opportunity to interface with people and be the answer man in terms of Bible and what the Lord would have to say about what they're thinking, the direction they're going, it is amazing how many backstories have been running, how many things have been arranged to put you at a certain place and them at a certain place and bring together all those elements. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when you're praying for something and praying for something and all of a sudden the answer comes and you look back and see this was all orchestrated long before you realized you had a need again and again and again. That's been the experience down through the years. I don't think professional marketing has much place in personal ministry. It ought to be one-on-one. -on -one personal, get to know people, appreciate their humanness, understand marred and twisted as it may be, everyone's made in the image of God and they all have a story to tell. They just need a safe place to do it and an open place where they won't be shot down, kicked in the gut or used against them or end up in a sermon illustration somewhere. <laughs> Great transition moment. <laughs> That's great. Um, the the thing that I of course wanted to ask you about is Israel. Uh, we we can't have you here for the podcast and not talk about Israel. So that's a, a pretty broad question, but I wanted to open that up. What role has Israel played in your life over the decades? There's no way I can diminish the huge role it's played in my life. There's no way I can play that down. 1972, I met Gordon separately. In those days, uh, his moniker was Mr. Israel. Everybody that knew him well, uh, especially us older students, he was Abba Sep. Uh, I remember a number of young ladies uh, that had had rough backgrounds, um, somewhat fatherless, a bit adrift, no male influence that was mature and reasonable in their life. And Sep just took him under his wing. I don't know how many daughters he had total. <laughs> and Nancy, right on board with everything that went on. Uh, it was nothing untoward or inappropriate. He was just a granddad and a dad to them. That model has stuck with me down through the years. Uh, and Israel was very much a part of that. The man infected me with this love for Israel, the land, its history, geography, geology, but more importantly, its people. I, I look at it this way, and they're all interrelated. I can't pick them apart. If Jesus is an Orthodox Jewish right-wing rabbi, and still is today, and all the apostles and prophets were Jewish individuals of one ilk or another, all the disciples, all the New Testament big figures in our Bible, with the possible exception of Luke, and he was a wannabe. You know, in, in the midst of all that, if that redemption of drama and, and that, that dramatic presentation of God's unrolling salvation took place in a specific land he chose, implementing a specific people he chose, right or wrong, whether they did it well or not, it's the context of who we are. And if I'm not in touch with the roots from which I came and how God developed his, his marvelous presentation to each of us along the way, then I'm missing major components in my Bible. When we went to uh, Dallas Seminary, I 
stopped S. Lewis Johnson, who was head of the New Testament department one time, and said to him, you know, I've got to decide on a major here. Um, I suppose you're going to tell me major in New Testament because that's who you are. He said, oh, no, no. Major in Old Testament and the culture and people of Israel. Until you understand that, you will really not have a good handle on the New Testament. So who were my mentors primarily? Uh, people that spoke on a human level to folks and folks who were tied to the land. Gordon separately started that. Mm -hmm. 1994, May Stewart walked into my office and said, it just dawned on me, you've never been to Israel. You need to go to Israel. That was 94. I went for the summer to Jerusalem University. In those days, it was the Institute for Holy Land Studies. Mm -hmm. 96, I went back for the summer again. 97, I went back for the summer. Uh, seven different digs on different summer excursions. I'm on the board of Jerusalem University. I'm the campus rep for Jerusalem University. Uh, I'm also the campus guy uh, until quite recently for a semester abroad at Jerusalem <laughs> University. Um, I've lost track of how many tours, how many trips, how many board meetings, uh, how many pleasure trips on my part uh, when it was available to me. It is a major, major part of my life and my ministry, and it turned everything upside down. Even my master's thesis and my doctor's dissertation were taking the land, its geography, geom uh, geology, and history, wetting it with the archaeology, and then wetting that with the biblical truth that represented that. And I used it as three separate standalone disciplines because I was dealing with a secular audience who had no heart for evangelical Christians. Those three stand-alone disciplines fit like a hand in a glove. To me, it just underlines again and again and again the absolute truthfulness and straightforwardness of our Bible through the eyes of a local observer. Geography drives the narrative. I'm still convinced of that. And the more I see, the more I walk the turf, the more I study, the more I become involved with the people of the land. Ain't it so? <laughs> over and over and over again. One of the great fears I have right now is that I'm beginning to observe in the church in general a lack of interest in Israel, in the Jewish people, the rise of anti-Semitism, the lack of people involved in theological ventures of one sort or another at all. Um, that to me breaks my heart because it is such a rich, rich field. Uh, I've spent my adult life since the military, uh, since I met Gordon separately, invested in the drama of redemption that worked out in the land of Israel. I always like to, in these conversations, find out some things that, that people would recommend as um, books that they have uh, come across that they would say, they would recommend. And and I thought mm. too, you know, you're you're a very interesting man. Why not throw in a film too? You know, I mean you've got this interesting background. So what is there? Is there a book and a film that you would recommend? Mm. Uh mm. let let's say, you know, a student comes to you, just general student, and they're looking for some recommendations and, and they say, Dr. Hardesty, I, you know, if you could recommend one of those to me, what would that be and why? <laughs> a book. Let me start this way. Um between friends I have and associations that um, have come my way and have been developed over the years, 
the university has received free of charge some 6,500 volumes in Jewish studies uh, <laughs> from multiple sources, uh, most of them through my work in the Baltimore area, et cetera. Pick one of them. Okay. <laughs> um, I know everybody hates this yeah. question because one, okay. All right, me, you can do three if you want to do okay. three. Yeah. Let, me, let me approach it this way. When I got out of the military, um, I was, wow, how do I, how do I explain this in just a few words? Uh, I was a train wreck uh, inside. You wouldn't have known it outside, but I was grappling with what just went down. Why am I so destroyed internally? How comes part of me feels like it's dead? Why am I so wounded? So early on in my Christian experience uh, after the military, I spent an awful lot of time reading everything I could get my hands on. One of the things that moved me intensely uh, was the genocide in Cambodia, uh, the killing fields, uh, which was also made into a movie. So a lot of my early movie experience was in that regard. Um, things that helped me understand my experience and come to grips with it. Killing Fields was a major, major part of that. Having said that, my oldest son works for Sight and Sound. He's a staff artist and a concept person there. Uh, I've done a little bit of consulting for some of the background things they're doing right now. So when it comes to movies, Sight and Sound is the first on my list mm -hmm. uh, in terms of dramatizing and presenting to the public scripture coming alive. I am very, very uh, appreciative of uh, Dallas Jenkins, Jerry Jenkins' son, who has put together and is beginning to continue this Chosen series that just came out. I find it not only historically accurate, but culturally and archaeologically accurate, as well as sticking to the word. I am utterly fascinated with that, and we're going to use it at our church with great regularity. So if there's any movies that are out today, The Passion moved me deeply. Uh, I think that's the first non-hokey Christian film I ever saw. And I hate hokey, okay? <laughs> All the, yeah. the historically Christian films and things of that nature have been second rate at best, poorly done. I am so pleased to see that turning around in a hurry. Uh, and talking to Ryan over at Sight and Sound, they are doing their best to eliminate that kind of background and reputation. Chosen goes a long way in that. In terms of books, let's just start early on. A missionary friend gave me a book uh, right after I went to Bible college. I had known her for years. We grew up together. Uh, she was a missionary in Holland for many, many years. A really, really difficult ministry. Uh, burn over turf and hard people to reach. Uh, she gave me a book that I tried to read. It made no sense to me at all. It just wasn't scratching me where I itched. After Bible college, I picked it up again, still nothing. After seminary, still nothing. After catastrophes in my life and things falling apart and the Lord rebuilding me from the bottom up, I picked up The Normal Christian Life Again by Watchman Nee, his devotional commentary on Romans. It spoke to my heart at that point. I began to read everything he ever wrote. I read the rabbis quite a bit. I read especially the pre-science rabbis like Ankalas, etc., cetera, uh, Maimonides, uh, on and on it goes. Um, I find the wisdom that they have as they look at their world and how they interface with Christians to be magnificent and help me understand who I am. Most Orthodox Jews I know 
only want to be left alone. That's what they want from Christians. And if they know their history at all, they understand Christianity to be a synonym for persecution. So I have spent a lot of years trying to build bridges, and I am trusted in that portion of the Jewish community because of years of effort in that regard and being wide open and honest about who we are and how we approach. When Baltimore Hebrew University um, ceased being a standalone and became the Jewish Studies Division of Towson University, uh, there were three alumni picked from Baltimore Hebrew University to speak to the Jewish community at large. Uh, I was one of those. I. That is a blessing that I cannot communicate to you in terms of how deep that moved me. Um, what did you talk about? I talked about how they had educated me and accepted me and opened their arms to me and not talked down to me or considered me someone that was a threat to their community. Um, now that requires you earn the right as well. But when I finished that time, uh, I told him in Hebrew that I thanked them for becoming my new family and that uh, they were most gracious and I was blessed by them. They stood up and applauded. The auditorium erupted. I was the only Gentile asked to speak. That takes a lot of years. That takes a lot of hard work. And that also takes a heart that loves them for who they are. I don't imagine there were more than a half a dozen Christians in that room. And there were hundreds of people there. It really bothers me, really bothers me that we have separated ourselves so completely from our Jewish roots and the people that God chose to demonstrate himself under the law, before the world. Uh, Jewish ministry is very important to me. And it's not a t in terms of go get them for Jesus. No, no. Let's be honest. Let's talk about things. Let's, let's look where the prophecies take you. Let's see what holds water, what comes together, what's real and what isn't. And I find when you're open and you've taken the time to build the bridge, and they have learned they can trust you because you're not going to blindside them or nail them, you know. That conversation continues. What would you say are one or two of the richest memories you have of your time here? <clears throat> In the classroom, out of the classroom, as a student, just a couple of things that come to your mind. First, the colleagues. Again, most of my friends, even as a student, were staff and faculty. It's somewhat intimidating when Charles Ryrie becomes your colleague. I, I never got to the place where I could think about even calling him Chuck. That just doesn't work. You know? uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, meet and talk and, and perhaps befriend on some level. Uh, guys, uh, Dave Jeremiah was a youth director in Jersey when I was a youth director in Delaware County. Uh, now he's the big deal in San Diego. Uh, Chuck Swindoll. Um, was one of the guys that sat around the table with us at seminary, brown bag lunches, and just talked about things. You know, what's going on in your life? What's going on in this life, etc. cetera. Um, I don't know that these are big names to other people, but they're folks that have marked me up. Uh, the colleagues here are incredible. 
the background of people that poured their life into me and then became my colleagues and accepted me on that level and continued to mentor me in the process because they were older than I, um, that's a great joy. But I have to say that the greatest joy uh, was what Gordon separately infected me with. I've got a whole bunch of sons and daughters here too. It's the students. That's why I'm here. That's why I take that drive all the time. That's why I've been here this long. It's not so much, this is gonna sound wrong, but take this properly. It's not so much the school and it's not so much what the school has done for me in terms of notoriety, opportunity, connections, networking, all of that. It's all of those things that have given me the opportunity to open the book and share it with the young people. And over the years, as you know, I'm teaching some students' grandchildren. That's a hoot. That really is. It's amazing. And when students come back with their kids, they're in my house, they call, they email, etc. Abba Sepp's not the only one with a nickname. The student some time ago gave me the nickname Saba. Saba's Hebrew for grandfather. Um, when I was in Israel with a group a couple years back, they kept saying, Saba this, Saba, Saba come over here. And the guide looked at them and said, that is disrespectful. He hasn't earned doctorate. You know, that kind of thing. And I said, whoa, whoa. That's an earned grace term. That's an honor. Yeah, you have it wrong. They call me that because we love each other. They don't call me that because they're being derisive concerning my age. And I think that's because I've been as transparent as possible in the classroom and outside the classroom. I hate what COVID has done to our student body. And I don't even want to get into the pedagogical ramifications of distance learning versus hybrid versus the mass, etc. There's an entire year of students I wouldn't recognize without a mask on. That's a shame because relationship is what I thrived on down through the years. And it's what keeps me coming back year after year. 10 or 12 years pass when most people retire. It's because of the young people. It's because of the students. What will you miss most about being a regular part of Karen? That. <laughs> exactly that. We're still doing the tour uh, next March. Uh, this will probably be the last one. I'll be uh, almost 77 when that tour hits. Uh, you know, they're going to push me around in a wheelchair and I'll bounce up and down the steps a little bit here and there. Now it's, um, so now the grandfather moniker yeah. will be even more. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I intend to be as associated with the school as, as I can be. When, uh, when it was announced this was my last chapel, Todd stopped me about an hour later and said, not a chance. So <laughs> I hope that continues. Um, awful lot of classmates uh, that I still spend time with. And now it's becoming more and more the students that I taught along the way. Um, I, I hope that I can still be a meaningful part of things and pass on at least a few things that I've learned along the way and help the young men see be real, be humble, honor your people, 
pour yourself into them, you're pretty much all they're going to see. How's the Christ in you looking these days? You know, and this is not a program. It's not some rah-rah thing. It's not a bunch of verses to memorize or somebody's, you know, canned presentation. It's just being real and caring about people and loving them in the Lord and letting them letting them into your life, taking that risk, opening yourself up, warts and all, and loving them anyhow. Uh, that I'm going to miss. That will be very difficult. The administrative side of things, the staff side of things, I won't miss that for 10 cents, okay? But <laughs> the rest of it, that's difficult. Yeah. yeah. Well, as we come to the close of our conversation here, Ed, I always like to ask what kind of, what are the final words of advice that you might have that you would want to leave with former students, but but really, you know, any person who's, who's interested in hearing what somebody who's uh, got quite a few years of experience and uh, wisdom build up and some diverse experiences. What would you What would you say? There's an awful lot of things that are necessary to make it through this life in a successful fashion. Uh, there are responsibilities that come to everyone's uh, into everyone's life uh, as husbands, as fathers, uh, as brothers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Church problems, outside problems, secular problems. You name it; it's all there. That should never supersede a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord. If that's not maintained, all the rest becomes tedious in a hurry. If that is maintained, it all becomes an outworking of that relationship. Brokenness, humility before the Lord, and he'll engineer that without any problem. But will we, as people who walk with him, allow him to build into us? the beauty of his son. And he usually does that by tearing something down before he builds. Are we okay with that? I love Paul in 2 Corinthians, grossly paraphrased in chapter 5. Um, Let me live? Great. I'll continue to minister. It is my absolute joy in life. Take me out, kill this earth suit, mess with the stuff I love, the people I care about. Okay, I go home. Where's the downside to that? For we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. That makes you uncontrollable by the things and circumstances of this world. You march to a different tune altogether. You're looking for his heart in the matter. And that changes the way you approach everything. Open heart. Clear mind. It's a small thing, but it's the core. Always, always, always. What would you have me to be today, Lord? Who are you going to bring across my path today, Lord? In the midst of all the responsibilities, you're digging deep with this, brother. I walked out of combat with no battlefield conversion, no epiphany, but a growing I don't know what you call conviction in my gut. Please don't let me get to the other end of my life and realize I've played it safe or I've sold out or I've moved in the wrong direction. I've never risked it. Don't let me find that at the end of my life I've never lived. Please keep me vital. Please keep me humble. 
I think he's done both of those things. And I think they're worthy pursuits. Everything else tends to fall in place. Well, thanks for joining us, Ed, for sitting and talking. And thanks for those of you who've been listening. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, be sure to check out the chapel talk that Ed did. It's already posted up on the website, and we'll link it here below. Also, check out all the other Cairn podcasts at cairn.edu slash media, including back issues of Cairn 10, the Advancement Podcast, the Chapels, Dr. Williams, and so much more. And so thanks for taking some time with us, and thanks for listening.